The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here this morning, and uh, just need to let you know I had a just a very minor uh, procedure done on my left foot the other day, so I'm on T3s today. So I have a little bit of leeway with what I'm able to say, so I've been told. And uh, I don't want you to think I'm lazy by sitting on a chair, but it's probably wiser for me this way. And it swivels, so I can still kind of... Oh, I didn't think it would go all the way around. Okay, so you're seeing it's off to a good start. Uh, I saw this, and I figured I was addicted to the hokey pokey, but I turned myself around. So, you know, I'm doing okay here. And uh, anyway... I wanted to start off with a, a little illustration. How many of you have ever done one of these, uh, one of those kind of underwater breathing contests? Like, you know, when you go to the pool with the kids and you try to hold your breath as long as you can? How many of you have ever done that, right? How many of you think you could hold your breath for, like, more than a minute? How many, like, two minutes? How many of you think you could beat Chuck Norris in an underwater breath? If you don't know Chuck Norris, he's like this action figure. Everybody, there's jokes are going around him. And, and I heard that uh, Chuck Norris won an underwater breathing contest with a fish. <laughs> That's how good this guy's lungs are. And, uh, but you know what? Uh, the reality for us is we only have limited breath. And uh, we realize how important it is when we lack it. And uh, I don't know, there's not that many times where I haven't had breath. I've been fortunate to have good health. I've met people who struggle for breath. Uh, But for me, the emotional tie to that is if all of a sudden you can't breathe because there's water around you. I once once went snuba diving, and I remember something seemed to go wrong with my mask. It's where you have this hose that's up to like a uh, raft that's about 14 feet above you, and something was wrong. And I remember just panicking because you just don't have the breath anymore. And, uh, and breath is hugely, hugely important for us. Uh, there's just a little sign I'll show you here. Danger, prolonged breath holding can lead to blackouts and death, right? That's definitely true, right? If you, if you were holding your breath too long, if you're like that kid who's angry and says, that's it, I'm not going to breathe until you do this for me, right? Pass out, hopefully you won't die. But, uh, but the idea is that breath is important. And often I forget that because I just do it so naturally. Uh, but when, it's br- when breath is held away from me, then all of a sudden I realize this is hugely important. Um, I'm just using this as a tie-in to today's sermon, because today is talking about Jesus being the bread of life. And for most of us, we haven't had to face starvation. You might have been hungry. You might have said the expression, man, I'm starving. Maybe you've done a 30-hour famine for world vision. But I don't think any of us, or I don't know, but most of us haven't been in the situation where We don't have food, and we don't have a prospect of food coming our way. And so the idea of Jesus being our bread maybe doesn't have the same kind of weight because we have an overabundance of that. So I just wanted to emotionally say Jesus is also our breath. Without him, we're done. We're toast. And so I want you to just keep that in mind as we look at our passage today that is found in John chapter 6. And I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles now to John 6. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 47 to 51. Uh, but before we, uh, oh, that's Kings. Before we uh, 
get there, I just want to give you a little bit of an overview of this passage so that you can understand the verses that we read in the context. So first of all, these are the days of Jesus' public ministry, and uh, most of this takes place around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, last week when Sean was sharing, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and then it says sometime later, uh, in the beginning of chapter 5, it says sometimes later. Beginning of chapter 6, it says sometimes later. John's not worried about chronology. He's not worried about if these events happen back to back. Actually, there's probably about, could be up to half a year between the events that we talked about last Sunday, uh, the person being healed by the pool, the paralytic being healed, and these events. It could have been up to, to six months later. But anyways, Jesus finds himself around the Sea of Galilee. This is kind of his home quarters. And most of the stories will take place today. The first part of the chapter takes place around Bethsaida. Uh, and uh, this is where uh, Jesus actually uh, feeds the 5,000 people. And it says he's first up in the mountains. It says the goal in there, the goal in heights. He was up in the mountains with his disciples. He sees a crowd. This crowd needs to be fed. He feeds them. Then after that, it says the disciples started to cross the sea and they started going towards Gesenerat, which is uh, on the west coast there. And along the way, they meet Jesus walking on the water. They were struggling against the oars. They meet Jesus in the water. And then they end up at uh, Capernaum. And uh, this is where Jesus gives his sermon about being, I am the bread of life. So I just want you to have that as kind of, that, that's the overview of this chapter. The other thing that we need to know as we're looking at this chapter is, again, the importance of Passover. Uh, it mentions right at the beginning in, in this chapter, says the Jewish Passover feast was near. And this is important to remember again because of that, that redemptive perspective. John is writing that way to understand that Jesus is living that way. He knows that everything he's doing is towards the redemption of his people and also eventually the restoration of his people. And so Passover, if you remember, is a, is a yearly celebration of the Israelites being, uh, being freed from slavery in Egypt. And be, after being freed from slavery, they're in the wilderness for 40 years, and they experience God as being their provider. He provides them manna, bread in a miraculous way. For 40 years, every day they have this manna that falls on the ground, and it can't be stored. They have to pick it up fresh every day. And there's also a few times where God provides water uh, miraculously through the, even the flowing out of a rock. And so we need to know that Passover is a hugely important time for Jewish people. It's important for us as well because this is a time to remember that God is our rescuer and God is our provider. And so with those things, uh, please stand with me and I'll read uh, the portion for today. So this again is verse 47. And we will read to uh, 51. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Please be seated. Part of the expectation of Passover is that a prophet would be coming that surpassed Moses, or at least was like Moses. And so now when we get into John chapter 6, 
and we see the feeding of the 5,000. That is the, the, the story that should automatically come to mind for those of us familiar with Scripture. That's what John is kind of leading at, is that here's another, uh, someone greater than Moses. The manna was provided in the wilderness, and now God, Jesus, does something amazing with his people in modern-day Israel. 5,000 people. Now, this story is hugely important. It's the only one mentioned in all four Gospels. Okay, so there's, there's lots of stories that cross over, but this story about feeding the 5,000 is the only one that's mentioned in all four Gospels. And so I uh, just want to highlight here a few of the things that come out of this. And, and first are the words that Jesus says to Philip. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Why would he pinpoint Philip? John is the one who does this. He pinpoints Philip. And, well, Philip was from Bethsaida. I can't say the word right now. That was his hometown, so it would make sense that he'd know where to go find food. But so was Andrew. He could have said the same thing to Andrew. But the next phrase gives us an idea that there's something deeper going on with Philip that Jesus is concerned about or at least wanting to focus on right now. And it says that Jesus asked him only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And so in this circumstance, it doesn't say he did it to test the disciples. It says he did it to test Philip. Chapter 5 is the first time where Jesus makes the connection that he and God are one. And we can imagine at that that there's struggle going on in people's mind about how can that be. And we know that for Philip down the road that this was especially true because in John 14, when Jesus has his, the familiar verse that we know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have seen the Father, you have seen me. Philip's next words were, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. So he hears Jesus say that he and the Father are equivalent, that they're equal. And he says, Lord, show us the Father. Please show us. And that's all we need. We just need to see the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, haven't you been with me long enough that you know that when you see me, you are in the presence of God? And so I believe that in this situation, Jesus is specifically focusing on Philip because he wants his faith to be tested. And not so that Philip experiences failure, right? Because Philip says, where, where shall we buy enough bread for these people to eat? He, he didn't think of Jesus as being that provider right away. He thought of it as, how can I solve this problem? He says, even 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough food. In the NIV, it says about half a year. So it's equivalent to close to eight months' wages. Wouldn't be enough to buy food for everybody. Lord, it's not possible. And Jesus wants Philip I believe, to experience the, 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 the testing to make him realize even emotionally that he's underestimated who Jesus is. That he's looking to himself too quickly and he yet hasn't seen that Christ and God the Father are one. And so God tests him not to make him feel like a failure, but to help him be built up in his faith. Just as we could see that being done with Peter throughout the Gospels. Peter had a hard time believing that the good news was for the Gentiles. And if you read carefully through the Gospels and into the Acts and other letters, you will see that that was a struggle for Peter all the time. And for Philip, it seems that this was an issue for him. So the story on in the beginning of chapter, or the first verses of chapter 6 that uh, Andrew then said, well, here's a boy, here's a young boy, and he has five barley loaves and two fish. 
Uh, barley loaves are uh, the bread of the poor people. So he's saying, here's a little boy, and he's got this fish. And uh, Jesus says, well, take it. He gave, he gave thanks. He broke it. He says, get everybody to sit down, and we will, we will uh, share this around. So they did that. They shared it, and the disciples took it. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how they started with five loaves and two fishes, 12 disciples. What did they do? I don't know if they broke a little piece of bread, and, and I don't know how they did it. But the fact is this. They obeyed God. They obeyed Christ for something that would probably make me think, what are you talking about? No way. I'm not going to be made a fool of. I'm not going to take five loaves and try to feed 5,000 people. <laughs> but they had enough faith to actually do it, to go forward. And in the doing of it, somehow God made a miracle happen, a sign happen. And that's what we need to remember here, that this is, this is a sign. This is a, a sign that points to who Jesus is, his character, his ability to provide. And so... Uh, after they fed everybody, it's important for us to also remember that there was 12 baskets left over, right? So there's five fish, or five bread, two fish, 5,000 men. So this could be up to 15 to 20,000 people, if you think of the women and the children. This is a huge group. <laughs> and uh, then they say there's 12 baskets left over. And uh, I think most people would say the symbolism there is that there was enough for the masses and there was enough for the 12 disciples, which also symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. There was an abundance. Most people, when they look at this story, make the illustration or the application of the young boy. Bring whatever you have to God, and God will use it. And, and that's fine, but that is more of a devotional thought. I do believe that John had in, in mind a particular story from the Old Testament. And this would be the story of where Elisha feeds 100 men with 20 loaves. The story is there's, a, there's 100 men that he's responsible. This story takes place in just four verses in 2 Kings verse 4. And there's 100 men that Elisha feels responsible for. It says a man came with his first fruits, with the best of his offerings, which was 20 barley loaves. And he offered this to Elisha. And his servant says, well... What are we going to do with this? It's 20 loaves, and there's 100 people, and a loaf is just enough for one person, just to give you an idea. A loaf is like for one person. And so uh, there's not enough to do anything with this. And Elisha says to him, he says, uh, for this is what the Lord says, pass it out, give it to the people, there's enough to eat, and they will eat, and there will even be some left over. So there's a number of parallels between Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five five bread and two fish, and this story where Elisha has 20. There's the idea that someone brought a gift where there was a need. There's the idea that the servant thought this gift isn't sufficient and God made it sufficient. There's the act of faith in the distribution because they can't see humanly how this will be possible. And then there's also the fact that there was an abundance. So you can imagine that there's a, a, a close parallel here between the story of Elisha and what Jesus is doing. And, and the overall emphasis throughout this chapter is the great prophets of the past, Jesus is greater. You think Moses is a great prophet, you think Elijah was a great prophet, Elisha, Jesus is greater. Worship him. Elisha had 20 loaves, Christ had five. Elisha had 100 people, Christ fed 15 to 20,000. <laughs> Quite different. And so 
um, the people recognize this and they say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. That's the end result. The people say, surely this is the prophet. So they're recognizing Jesus as a prophet, but they don't see him as much more. So now we move on to the fifth sign. And this is just a little, little section in uh, John 6. And so here we find Jesus walking across the water. And in your notes, I've made a point there that this is not the same story as when the disciples are caught in the storm and Jesus comes, he, he's sleeping, and he wakes up and he says, peace be still. If you remember that, that happened earlier. So here now we see the disciples have gotten to the boat after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. They're taking the boat across. It says there's rough waters. Jesus waits till about 3 in the morning, and he starts walking across. It's about a three to five mile journey between the shore that they were on feeding the 5,000 and where they aimed to go on the west coast. And so it says Jesus walked and uh, he was passing them by. And uh, John is the briefest version of this story. In uh, Mark, I believe it says they thought he was a ghost. In Matthew, they say that uh, uh, they were terrified and Peter was able to actually go out of the boat and walk on the water. Like, that's a pretty major story. John leaves that out. He leaves out the fact about the ghosts. He leaves out the fact about the, uh, the people being hard-hearted because they didn't understand about the loaves. He leaves out about Peter walking on the water. And he just focuses on this. Jesus' word where he says, It is I. It is I. So they're in the middle of this storm, and they're worried. And what John wants you to realize is Jesus saying, It's I. Don't be afraid. When you're in my presence, all fear can be taken away. That's the point that John is making here. So this kind of seems like, well, isn't this story out of place? How does this fit with the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus' sermon about uh, being the bread of life? And, and one commentator suggested, and I think this is a, a good connection, is that Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 uh, helped connect people to the idea of Jesus is the bread of life. And this story of Jesus walking on the water connects people with the divinity of Jesus, that he is the I am. And that's really the next part of this message is the sermon of Jesus being the bread of life. Uh, in between this, so Jesus, uh, it says the disciples, as soon as Jesus got into the boat, immediately they were on the shore and the people wake up, uh, the people who had been fed, they wake up and Jesus isn't there. So they decide, hey, we're going to go find Jesus. They must have gone that way. So they, they, some take a boat, some walk. We don't know how they all got there. But when they find Jesus, they say, Jesus, how did you get here? I think in some ways they're saying, Jesus, why did you leave us? Right? We, we were having it good. You were providing for our needs. And then all of a sudden you're gone. Like this is the heyday. There's a big celebration. Why would you leave? And uh, they say, so, so why did you leave us? And then they ask a question about, because Jesus says, you just came because your stomachs are hungry. You didn't come because you understood the sign, that you understand that I'm more than a prophet, that I am the Son of God. You didn't come because of that. You came because of your stomachs. You're only following me because you have felt needs. Now, there's nothing wrong with coming to God with felt needs, but it's something wrong when that's where, that's the only reason we come to him. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, uh, you, you have to come to me because I am the bread of life. And so they ask a question that seems kind of prosper. can't say the word, preposperous. Oh, forget it. Anyways, they came to Jesus because they wanted more bread. 
And so here, they have this question for them in verse uh, 30. So they ask him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Okay, so Jesus is saying he's the bread of life. And they're saying, well, prove it to us. Uh, excuse me? Like yesterday, didn't I just feed 5,000 people with bread? <laughs> but I think probably what they're thinking of is if you're remembering the story of Moses taking people through the wilderness, manna was provided every day. It didn't last from day to day to day. They, they said you couldn't even store it, otherwise it would rot, there'd be worms in it. So every day something was provided. So there's probably part of that in their mind is that this Messiah, this new, or this new prophet would be someone who gives an abundance like you did yesterday. You're going to do that every day. It's going to be fantastic. We're never going to be hungry again. I won't have to work a day in my life. You can just feed me. Thank you, Lord. So do it again. What are you going to do? Are you going to prove it? And more or less, I take this question as is them saying to Jesus, it's time to actually prove yourself. You did it once. Can you do it again? And Jesus says to them, or they say then, our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're asking Jesus for another sign. And what Jesus wants to tell them, and what he does tell them is, I am the sign. You just want bread so your bodies are fed? But I'm the sign. I'm the one that you should be satisfied with. So this is where we get into a core uh, verse in this section where Jesus says, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, manna, like Moses, he brought this bread down from heaven. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. First of all, God was the one who did that. Moses didn't do it. God brought the bread down. And now God has sent me down as his son. And I'm that bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So there's a couple key things in a very short verse. A couple sentences here. First of all, I am the living bread. This is the first of seven I am statements in John. And all these I am statements connect back to Exodus 3, where Moses met God in the burning bush, and he said, who are you? And God says, I am who I am. I am. That's just, that is God. So Jesus here is very clearly saying, I am who I am. And for John, he gives seven statements that will be coming in the following weeks that tell us a little bit more about who Jesus is. It's God revealing himself to us. And here he says, I am the living bread. So here in this verse, we find, first of all, the source of this living bread. It comes down from heaven. This points out to Christ's divinity. He was fully man, and the people in this story had no problem believing that he was man. You're the son of Joseph. They're actually getting really upset because he's identifying himself as a bread that came down from heaven. What are you talking about? We know you're the son of Joseph. It's interesting here that they don't talk about the son of Mary. Other places it will talk about the son of Mary. And here we understand that there's a misunderstanding in the people. They, they just see Jesus' biological, what they think are his biological origins, and they're wrong. They, they don't understand. They haven't maybe heard that Jesus is born of God, that Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And so uh, he's the one. He's the source of this life. It comes from heaven. There's a manner that we receive life in God. And so it's not enough that Jesus is living bread. We have to eat it. We have to partake in Christ. So if you want to experience 
the nutrition that comes from Christ, you have to digest him. You need, and we'll get into that a little bit more because this is where people said, well, this kind of sounds cannibalistic. <laughs> What's that about? No, he's not saying that. And, and one last thing, though, before we move to the next verses, it says, which I give for the life of the world. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. There's a cost for this bread. And it's Jesus giving his life. It costs him something for us to enter into relationship with him again after sin entered the world. Uh, some people confuse this verse with communion. Uh, in, in Catholic tradition, the bread and wine actually become the body of Christ, and they, they hold that as a transubstantiation. The, there's something miraculous that happens in the Eucharist, and the bread actually becomes the body, and the wine actually becomes the blood. Uh, so some people say it's very important to hear that, that Jesus doesn't say my bread is the body. He uses the word flesh. It's a different verse, a uh, different word entirely than when he's talking about communion. And we can see parallels. We can see connections. But he's not saying that communion is going to become his body and his blood, so eat it and drink it. He's not saying that. And just wanting to make that clear. And it's important to understand that because in John 6, verse 54, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So this is not meant to be taken literally. And this is where part of the confusion was. People were hearing this, and they were taking it literally. And God's saying, no, it's not meant that. Flesh and blood in this time actually often means my whole body. Right? You, you have to take all of me uh, in order to, to partake in eternal life. And this vision of, or this illustration of eating my flesh and drinking my blood is, is a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of us mutually indwelling with God. And that's a beautiful picture. I don't know how often you think of that, but God says that the blessing of knowing him is that we mutually indwell with him. Verse 56 talks about in, in chapter 6 says that those who are in Christ, that says Christ will be in us and we in him. Right? There's a mutual indwelling. And uh, it just talks about intimacy. We're, in the fall, we're going to be talking, going through the book of 2 Kings, which talks about uh, the building of the temple, which is hugely important in Israel's, in Israel's history because the temple was the picture of, or was the reality of God among them. Right? That was where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where people dwell. And, and during the fall, at the same time, we're going to be going through a book that's called The Indwelling Life of Christ, All of Him in All of Me. It's a book by Major Ian Thomas. It's a short devotional. And uh, it's a beautiful book to help us understand the wonderful privileges Christians we have of having life in the Holy Spirit, which is only because we partake in what the Bible would say here, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. We need to be in that mutual relationship with God. I just want to read you a, a, just a little quote from this book. It says, why does a human being need God to be functional? You could say, why does a human being need God to, God is his bread? Because we were made that way. Why does a human being need God to be functional? Because we were made to be that way. I can tell you this. If we are not actively looking for life in the Holy Spirit... This is, again, by accepting what Christ did for us on the cross, asking for our sins to be forgiven, believing that he not only died, that he rose again and ascended, and he sent his Holy Spirit. That if we're not intentionally learning day by day what it means to live by the Holy Spirit, even as Christians, we will find ourselves disillusioned. Because our purpose and our meaning for living is to indwell with God here and now. It's not just about heaven. It's about learning that Christ is in us now, and he wants all of us 
because he transforms all of us. Um, we have a body just like animals do. We have emotions just like animals do. We have wills. Animals have will. They can decide what they want to do. What's different about us is that we also have a spirit. God has given us a spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he transforms our spirit. There's new birth. Our spirit is different. It's made alive and again with God. But my body, my will, my emotions, they still struggle with sin. But Christ has come to, to change that, to bring life to that. And to give us the hope that, again, that one day we will have everlasting life. Just have a, a little diagram here uh, as far as the understanding the two things that are taking place in this story. First of all, the people who are in this story, they're seeing God as maybe at best a prophet who provides more manna. And so from their point of view, uh, God's the one who provides manna. This is the bread for physical provision during their wilderness wanderings, right? Like this is the, our daily bread. God can provide our manna. And, and, it, and it's a very temporal thing. And what God wants, what Jesus is saying now is, I'm not just, God doesn't just provide you your daily needs. He provides you with your eternal needs. And now he's identifying himself as being the manna, that bread from heaven. And Jesus is what we need. He's our spiritual provision that allows us to have eternal life with God. And again, when you hear that eternal life, that means life now, not just life when you die. It's life today in the Holy Spirit. So that's important to remember. <clears throat> so the last part here is that uh, after Jesus' sermon about him being the bread of life and that he is the source of everything we need, everything that's good, there's a, a section, the last verses, that talk about decisions that are being made. And it's not just the disciples that are making decisions, but these last verses uh, are particularly about that. And uh, the disciples are hearing Jesus say, I am the bread of life. They're hearing God, Jesus equate himself with being God. And on hearing it, it says, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, these are people who are self-identified as disciples. These aren't just the crowd anymore. These are the people who have already said, I'm going to follow you. I want to follow you. And now people are starting to understand more about who Christ is. He's revealing himself more completely. And they're saying, this is hard. I don't understand how you can be equal with God. And I think it's probably in there too that I'm not sure even if I understood if I'd want to follow you anymore. And, and we know this is true because many of them start complaining and they say, uh, they're just grumbling, right? And, and grumbling is definitely a sign of going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Whenever you hear the Bible say that people grumble and complain, it's almost always uh, an instance of saying you're going in the wrong direction. You're leaving the presence of God and you're starting to get your mind on worldly things. And so Jesus being aware of his disciples grumbling, he says, does this offend you? Does what I say offend you? And uh, a lot of them just say, yes, it does. It offends me, and I'm leaving. I've had enough of this. I've given some time. I don't know if it's been six months, a year. I thought you were the one, but that's it. I can't go that far. You could be a great prophet, but I can't believe this anymore. And so they, they leave. Shortly after Jesus asked this question, does it offend you, uh, we hear these words in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words which I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I think this is part of what they struggled with too afterwards is the flesh profits nothing. What are you talking about? 
haven't you seen all the good I do? Haven't you seen the sacrifices I've made? Don't I have to do something to prove to you that I'm worthy? And he's saying, it's the Spirit who gives life. There's nothing you can do to earn life. It's something that you just receive from God. Uh, last week when, when Sean was preaching, uh, verse 39 in chapter 5 says that some of you, you diligently search the scriptures because you think in searching the scriptures you have eternal life. But you've missed the point that scriptures point to me. That's a danger for us. It's a danger that we can say, the Bible's a wonderful book. It has many principles. It tells me how to live well with others. It gives me principles for being a good husband, to be a good employee. I need to study the Bible. I need to obey what the Bible says because that's the way to life. That can be very well intended. But Christ tells us, if that's what you think, if you think that studying the Bible and then obeying it is what life is, eternal life, you're wrong. If you think that just doing good works is what is eternal life, you're wrong. Eternal life is in me. And when you're with me, everything else starts to change. How you view the world changes, how you treat people changes, all those things, the good works and that, that flows out of being in an intimate relationship with God. And so some of us, we find that hard to believe because we'd rather be in the driver's seat, even in our relationship with God. And God says, no, that's not the way it is. You have to give everything over to me. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Again, it's all about God bringing people to himself. Um, a while back, I don't know if you remember, Pastor Terry shared a story about when you see a beautiful garden that you want to enter, it's like a sign on top that says, everybody welcome, it's free. Uh, when I go to Garden of the Gods in Denver, there's a sign there that says uh, the gentleman who used to own this land, he made it into a park because he wanted everybody to experience it free forever. He never wanted any cost to be there. And uh, when you go through that sign, if I remember correctly, Terry said, when you go through that sign and you look back and you, and you just want to remember that this is a free gift, you look back and it says you were chosen from the beginning of time. Right? That idea that it's a free gift I need to enter in, but once you enter in, you look back and you realize it's God who brought you there. And this is that mystery of we have a choice to make and God is sovereign. No one comes to Jesus unless he calls them, but we still have to choose him. <laughs> it's a mystery, it's a paradox, but it's true because the Bible says it. And so some people really had troubles with these kind of statements. And it says that at this point, many of his disciples turn away and they deserted him. If you remember back in chapter 2, uh, we talked about that as well, that, that there's many people, when people came to Jesus and said, we believe in you, that they want to follow him, he said, I don't put my trust in you because I know what's in the heart of man. And this is just, again, proving that point. Here are people who said they were committed to God, committed to Christ, and then they just turn their back on him now. And Jesus says in verse 67, something that I think is very heartfelt, he turns to the disciples that are left and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? I think, he, I think that must have hurt. When you have people who are dedicated to you, and he, 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 probably, he wasn't surprised that people would leave, but I think he was hurt because <laughs> he loved those people. He wasn't threatened. He knew nothing bad was going to happen to him, but I think he hurt for them. And I think he hurt because of that relational loss. 
And so he asked that question to the disciples, and Peter has these words, which I don't think he fully understands, but he says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter doesn't fully understand what's happening yet. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is, but he knows enough about Christ that he trusts him. And he says, we dedicate ourselves to you. And, uh, and this is the last part of the verse here. It says, there is no one like you. This is the kind of the theme there. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I just want to highlight this part as we close. It says, we have come to believe and know, not that the scriptures are true, not that our works are important, but that you are the Holy One. Our faith needs to be in Jesus Christ. That is the core. When people ask you, why are you a Christian? I hope Christ is the first answer. When people ask you, how are you growing as a Christian? I hope life with Christ is the answer and that we don't just say it as a Sunday school answer, but we're understanding more and more what it means to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. We need to trust God with everything. And when we do, we have a chance of intimate relationship with him and growing with each other. So with that, I'm going to ask uh, Kevin to come forward. Uh, our youth are going to come and lead us in a song. I believe it's I Surrender. And uh, that is actually the core of everything, is surrendering in our relationship with God.